You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I'd like you to um, think about uh, three scenarios for a moment. The first scenario I want you to picture in your mind is of lions on an African plain as they hunt game. You got that picture in your mind? Make that scenario number one. The second scenario I want you to picture is two people who are interacting about something, but they're, it's something they disagree about. And then the last scenario I want you to think about is God himself and how he relates to us. So on the one side, we've got uh, untamed wild animals. And on the other side, we have God and his perfections. And in the middle, we have humanity. Uh, Humans that have the capability to be godlike because we are image bearers of God, but also humans that have the capacity to resemble wild animals because of the way that uh, selfishness dominates our lives. Uh, Think about this for a moment. Why is it that you never see lions in the African savanna hovering over a carcass of game and and, and then lifting up their paw to to the lions beside them and saying, no, no, I insist, you first. It's because wild animals are instinctively selfish. And when I say that, I don't mean they're moral. Uh, animals are not moral. But I mean that they, in the way they behave, they, they, they behave in selfish ways, wild animals. Um, not all animals, wonderfully, but, but wild animals do. And so wild animals are instinctively selfish. On the other side of the continuum, God is instinctively unselfish. And in the middle are humans who are capable of both both unselfishness, sorry, unselfishness on this side and selfishness. We have the capacity to behave like wild animals or to behave like God as his image bearers. So today what I want to do is try to help us all to live like image bearers that we were created to be and try to move us away from descending into the animal-like behavior of selfish living. Really, in a very real sense, even though it's very common, a selfishness is subhuman behavior. We're going to be talking about humility today. And I want you to know that as I teach you about humility today, I don't teach as one who lives this virtue because I know myself Uh, to be a very proud and sinful man. Uh, I teach this as someone who desperately needs this virtue to grow in my life, and I know this is something that God wants for every one of us. Hopefully, uh, by the end of our message today, it will be obvious how this virtue of humility can help each of us in our relationships with others, especially as we're confined in close spaces with others. So if you could open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Philippians. The New Testament book of Philippians, 
And if you don't have your Bible, just follow along on the PowerPoint as I read Philippians 2, 1 to 8. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, as we look at these verses together, there is an obvious lesson about humility, and it's uh, all about how humility is really the key attitude that produces unity. But there's also a less obvious lesson about how the person and accomplishments of Christ are the template and the power generator of everything that we do as Christians. If we catch the obvious lesson, but miss the less obvious lesson, it's the equivalent of trying to throw an arrow at a target and hoping it sticks, rather than shooting it at the target with a bow. Uh, throwing arrows at targets just doesn't work. So let's, let's look at our text together paying attention to both the obvious lesson, which matters, but also the less obvious lesson that especially matters. I believe our passage today can be summarized in the following way. Harmonious relationships are built upon common convictions and held together by uncommon unselfishness. Okay, harmonious relationships are built upon common convictions, and held together by uncommon unselfishness. Now, I'd like to get back to verse 1 later, but today we're going to start with verse 2, which is describing the target that we're aiming for. And this brings us to point number one. Harmonious relationships are built upon common convictions. Look with me at verse 2 in the text. Verse 2 describes harmony and unity. Let me read it again. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Uh, he uses various expressions to talk about unity here. And what I especially want you to notice is the phrase, the same mind, in the ESV. And if you have the NIV, it says, being like-minded. The original word for mind here is not the typical word for mind that refers to the, the center of a person's life or what is often a, a synonym for the word heart. Rather, it's an uncommon word that has the idea of a common opinion 
or uh, in a common evaluation of something. So, for example, in 2 Corinthians 13.11, this same original word is translated as agree. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Notice again that it's also in a context of, of harmony and unity. Um, the, the word agree is a great way to translate this one mind because it captures the idea so well. It's also translated as agree a little later on in Philippians in the context of a conflict between two people in the church. Notice this in Philippians 4 verse 2. I entreat Euodica and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, this is the point that I want you to see. There is an objective side to unity in relationships. Uh, people who get along, people who have harmony in their relationships, have common convictions and values. They, they hold to the same priorities. They share certain things in common. We must not imagine that unity in a church or unity in a marriage is a matter of, of two people or many people by force of will choosing to get along even though they have nothing in common or very little in common. That's not the way the Bible presents the, the concept of unity. A big part of unity is common convictions, beliefs. What we believe matters. Over the years, I've, I've seen so many young couples whose primary way of getting together, and I get this, is a physical attraction to each other. But it, it worries me when I see them developing in their relationship, sometimes over many months, even years, where they rarely talk about what they value and what they believe. Let me tell you that physical attraction isn't enough to hold people together when differing convictions rise to the surface, especially when those differing convictions are mixed in with selfishness. So the first essential of unity is common convictions about what matters. Everything isn't important. I hope you know that. Everything isn't important, and everything isn't as important to the same degree, but some things really do matter. However, common convictions alone are not enough to create unity in relationships, and this is kind of a surprise to many people. They think if they believe the same things, if they have the same uh, document, churches think that they have the same doctrinal statement, uh, and everybody kind of uh, agrees to it, they're going to be united. And of course, that just isn't true because unity isn't just rooted in beliefs, but also in behavior. And this is where this text that we're looking at today puts the emphasis. This is the second essential part of unity. Yes, unity is built on an objective base of common convictions, but it is held together by the subjective practice of humility. Harmonious relationships are held together by uncommon unselfishness. Think for a moment about how houses are built. Common convictions are like the foundation that's under the house. Very important, but mostly hidden. But how is the house itself built? 
the, the house is built by a whole bunch of various components of wood and brick and stone and glass. And, and these are all, are all held together by nails and cement and other bonding materials. The, the, the finished house at the end uh, is one because there's many, many bonding things like nails that hold it together. Well, it also requires many, many unselfish acts of humility to hold relationships together. Unselfishness is just really another way of talking about love, isn't it? Listen to what scriptures say about love. Above all these, put on love, which, what? Binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let me read verses uh, 3 to 4 again. For I think verses 3 and 4 of Philippians 2 are the best definition of humility that's found in the Bible. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. These two verses make it very plain that the biggest threat to unity in relationships is pride. It is pride, my friends, that tears all human relationships to pieces. It is pride that destroys friendships, marriages, and churches. Pride is the real pandemic that it infects everyone that it comes in contact with. And, and the only antidote or vaccine to pride is humility. Now, these two verses show us what humility is made of. It's made of two parts. There's a, there's a thinking part to humility, and there is uh, a doing part. Notice, first of all, in verse 3, that we actively consider others more significant than ourselves. Another way to say this is that we, we, we treat others as if they are more important than ourselves. This is the thinking part of humility. It's, it's an attitude of mind. And wouldn't you agree that it's uncommon? And then there's the second part, which is found in verse 4, and this is the doing part. We actively, after in our mind treating them as if they're more important than us, then we actively seek out their interests, not just our own. It's interesting, verse 4 doesn't condemn us for seeking our own interests, but it says don't just seek just your own interests, seek others out as well. This is really just another way of talking about the golden rule, doing unto others as you would have them do to you. It's, it's a, a choice. It's a choice to live with uncommon unselfishness. The, these two ingredients of humility, a way of thinking and a way of behaving then, are further explained in the verses that follow. And verse 5 links this definition and this command of humility to Jesus. Do you see that in verse 5? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And by the way, when it says mind there, have this mind among yourselves, which, was, which is yours in Christ Jesus, it's the same word mind that we find in verse 2. In other words, we talked about having common convictions. 
that, that that's an essential part of unity. Well, part of the common conviction that we have to have is this, that, in, that humility matters. We, we got to believe that, that, that humility matters, that we have to think like Jesus in the way that he thinks. This is one of the common convictions that we all need if we are ever going to be united. Uh, uh, humility is not an optional virtue in the Christian life. It is an essential virtue, and it's absolutely essential for harmonious relationships. This is, by the way, the key to harmonious relationships. Right here, we're looking right at the, the epicenter, humility. You know, when you, when you study the, the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you find out a lot about how, gospel, about how Jesus uh, behaves and how he talks. And it really is an astounding thing to, to watch. But have you ever wondered what Jesus actually thinks about? Um, one of the reasons I study the book of Proverbs so much is because I think it's a, an insight into the mind of Christ. But these verses also give us insight into the mind of Christ. They, they, they give us uh, a behind the way, the, a behind the, the, the um, look, a, a behind look at what's going on uh, under the radar in Jesus's mind, his inner thought life. And interestingly, in verse five, we are told that we are supposed to be thinking like he did. That's an astounding statement. Uh, but it is told us because it's possible, and I'm going to show you how it's possible in a moment. In other words, our need of humility, in verse 5, is linked to the gospel story. You see that? Uh, we, you're going to find this a lot as we go along uh, in our church life, that everything that we're doing in church life, we're linking to the gospel. And the gospel story that that is being portrayed here in, in Philippians 2 is not that Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven by God. That's in other places in Scripture. What it's telling us here is that the way Jesus died, the, the, the very pathway to the cross is a part of the whole paradigm of humility that we're supposed to be learning. So the gospel is the bow. Humility is the arrow, and unity is the target. Are you starting to see how all this fits together? Verses 6 to 11 in Philippians 2 are, is considered one of the great passages on Christ in the New Testament. And we're just not going to have time today to get into all the wondrous things that are taught here. In fact, there's, a, there's many elements of humility that are taught uh, in this passage we just don't have time to get to today, maybe another time but I hope I get to some of the key ones anyway. The, the key question that's being answered from verses 6 to verse 11 of Philippians 2 is this. How is it possible that Christ, the Son of God, who lived in the heights of heaven's glory, how is it possible that such a one could descend to the horrifying shame and agony of the cross. How is that even possible? Well, these verses tell us how that, how that came about. 
in verse 7, it tells us that it was a deliberate choice. He made himself nothing. One translation renders John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 17, this way. I lay down my life. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of my own free will. So the first thing that we learn about humility, looking at the life of Christ, is that it's a choice. Humility isn't a feeling, okay? Humility is an act of the will but it's an act of the will that has careful thought behind it. And, and what exactly was the thinking behind that choice that Jesus made? Well, it tells us in verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He gave up his rights. He gave up the right to be treated with respect and honor. He gave up his right to be cherished, adored, and worshipped. He gave up his right to be treated as God the Son, the Almighty God. This is what God is like, my friends. It's the opposite of the untamed wild animals. Uh, This God has a heart for uncommon unselfishness. Um, Is it not not true that we live in a a day where everyone wants their rights? Everyone talks about their rights. Everyone demands their rights. Everyone is demanding to be treated in a certain way by others, and they get angry if they aren't given their rights. Uh, This is a generation that feels incredibly entitled. Why did Jesus act so differently from that? Jesus willingly put aside his rights, my friends, because, back at verse 3 and 4, because he treated your rescue and he treated my rescue from sin as more important than getting all his rights. He did this for you and for me, for people who have little or no time for him, who rebel against him. Really, if you think about it, it's absolutely shocking. P.T. O'Brien is a New Testament scholar, and in my opinion, has written the best commentary on this book. And commenting on verse 7, where it says that, He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, literally taking the form of a slave, uh, being born in the likeness of men. He, He says this. Listen carefully. This is an astounding thing. He did not exchange the nature or form of God for that of a slave. Instead, he displayed the nature or form of God in the nature or form of a slave thereby showing clearly not only what his character was like, but, what, but also what it meant to be God. Christ gave up his rights because God is like that, utterly unselfish, the opposite end of the spectrum from the grasping wild animals. 
Here then we find the second truth about humility. Not only is humility a, a choice of the will, but it is a giving up of personal rights for the sake of others. Harmonious relationships are built upon common convictions and held together by uncommon unselfishness. The, the picture, my friends, of Christ's humility is, is a wonderful incentive to humility in our own lives. But unfortunately, it's not enough to move us past our deeply embedded selfishness. Knowing what we should do just isn't enough to change your heart, is it? This is where I think, and I mentioned this before, this is where the virtue training in our, in our schools is wrongheaded. Uh, because you can't teach virtue into people. It's, it's an issue of the heart. Sure, information helps, but information alone is not enough. Information does not necessarily mean transformation. The, the key to living this passage is found in verse 1. If you could look back there with me. Here we get to how it all works. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, blah, blah, blah. The, the key to living this passage, we are told, the key to, to living the priority of unity, the key to uh, having the humility and common convictions is the, our personal experience of God. And if you've got the NIV, it says in the second part of the verse, uh, if there's any comfort from his love, implying that the, the love experience is Christ's love. But literally, the, the original language says, if there's any comfort from love, and I believe that it's the Father's love that is being referred to here. Of course, the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they do everything together. But the Bible at times uh, distinguishes the various persons of the Trinity and what they're doing with regard to us. Verse 1 is an amazing reminder of how each person of the Trinity has blessed us experientially and then describes how that experience of God helps us feel kindly towards others. Affection and sympathy. By the way, both of those words, affection and sympathy, are, are feeling words. So here's an astounding thing, my friends. Yeah. We've talked all about willpower and in, 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 in humility and, and thinking about humility. But at the at the base of it is feelings. In the way that God has affect the way He has affected us in our relationship with Him and the way He's made us feel towards others. I think this is incredibly significant because it emphasizes something that I think most of us don't ever think about. And that, that is simply this, that humility isn't built primarily on orthodox doctrines and creeds. Man, if you know me, you know that I love theology and doctrine really matters. But you can be doctrinally correct and proud at the same time. In another place in Scripture, it says knowledge puffs up. 
where it also says in in the Proverbs three portion that we read that 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 we can be wise in our own eyes. Instead of that, what what moves us to humility is experience of God's care towards us, the encouragement we have in Christ, the comfort from the Father's love, the the participation or communion that we re- we 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 experience in the Spirit and with one another. Each person of the Trinity is giving us the goodness of redemption, and as we experience that reality in our life, it allows us, it releases us to, to behave differently towards other people. I think the reason that some people struggle so much in their relationships with others is because their relationship with God is based more on facts and things they know about him than on a personal relationship of love with a personal God. I wonder if that would be true of you today. Is God more of a religious idea or just a fact to you? Or is your relationship with God an experienced reality? Just as, my friends, just as we receive Christ by faith and depend on him completely for our salvation and to to start our relationship with God, so also we look in faith uh, to Christ for his life and his mind uh, to start to show up in our life day by day. I wondered uh, as I was writing this message whether I should share this quote with you. I'm going to end this message with a quote that's going to sound a little cerebral to you, okay? But uh, let's, let's listen carefully to this, okay? It's, and I'll, I'll explain it because I think it's saying something very powerful. This is the bow that propels the arrow of humility, my friends, into the target of unity. I quote, this one, this one is, is of course, Jesus. This one who lives is the commander of an ought. That's something we ought to do, yet is the very ought which he commands. Accordingly, his command to us is not to follow a law, but to live in harmony with himself, who is present as the law he is. Thus, the command of the gospel to follow is truly good news. Then listen to this part. It is about living not to an ethic of a person, but rather in harmony with a person who is present and active in his spirit as the love that he is. Christian discipleship is simply the disciplined habit of thinking and acting in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come back to a theme that we've often come to in our church, and that is that it's it's so much easier to love others well when we know that we are loved by you. This is why assurance matters, because if people don't have assurance that they're loved by God, it makes it harder for them to love others. So I want to pray in Jesus' name that you will move us from a theoretical faith to a living faith, 
We won't be afraid of experiencing the reality of your, your encouragement and your love and your communion, as it talks about in verse 1. Because, because Christ died on the cross, not so that we could just have a legal, uh, be set legally right with you, as, as important as that is, but so that we could know you as our Father, so that we could cry out to you as Abba, Father, that we could, we could feel close to you that we could love you and, and, and keep ourselves in the love of God. And so, Father, I pray again that this would happen to us, Lord, in these days, that there would be a, in our isolation that we'd be so aware of your care over us. And, and as that starts to come alive, as we put our faith in Christ, Lord, we pray that we would just truly grow in this, this virtue of humility, where we would choose to give up our rights, that we would be a church that is resembles more deity and God who is like this than wild animals, Lord, who are not like this. Uh, we, we, we ask, Lord, may we be uh, function as the image bearers you've made us to be, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.